2 Timothy chapter 2. The title of today's sermon is Strengthened for the Gospel. We'll begin with reading the word and then prayer. Beginning in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, you have given us your word. You have given us your son. And thank you also for giving us the apostles who, who you used to give us these words that, of life. Please open your word to us this morning. May your spirit reveal its truths, its goodness, its beauty to our hearts. May we be strong. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Be strong. That's, everything, that's something everyone has heard, I'm sure. Whether in sports, from your parents, as when you were a child, we've all been told to be strong. And I'm sure any of you who are parents here have told that to your children too. Toughen up. So, we all know those words, and not only do we hear it in our life, but it's a constant phrase repeated throughout Scripture. Be strong, or be strengthened. We see this in the Old Testament with Moses and Joshua. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells Joshua, be strong in the Lord. And that theme is then carried into the book of Joshua with the Lord himself saying those words to Joshua. David says those words, be strong. He tells that to his son Solomon as Solomon is getting ready to take the throne. This is in 1 Kings chapter 2. I will read, David tells his son Solomon, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses. So we see that idea again, be strong. Another example from the Old Testament is Haggai, a prophet speaking the words of the Lord. He tells Zerubbabel to be strong. Zerubbabel was charged with helping to go back and return to Jerusalem and do the work of rebuilding. So again, there's this theme we need to notice transition, the mantle of ministry being passed from one man to another. And also the picture of a mentor to a mentee. Moses again to Joshua. David to Solomon. When great work is ahead, strength is necessary. And we see in our passage today, Paul to Timothy. 
Paul the Apostle speaking to Timothy, his disciple. Be strong. And notice the relationship of Paul to Timothy. In chapter 1, verse 2, he, he addresses Timothy and says, To Timothy, my beloved child. He's speaking to him a father to, as a father to a son. And so we, we, we hear the admonition. We know the command, be strong. But I, I don't know about you, but the question that arises in my own heart is, how? How do I be strong? What does that look like as a Christian? And where does that strength come from? Does it come from self-help books? Does it come, this strength, does it come somewhere inside of me and I, I need to just go hide somewhere and really do lots of introspection to find the strength inside? Is that where it comes from? As we'll see from this passage, the answer is clearly no. And Paul tells Timothy exactly where to find that strength and what it looks like and how to go about being strong as a Christian. And we are going to spend time here this morning because this is not just a word to Timothy. Though he is the original audience, it is a word to us as well. All scripture, Paul tells us later in this same book, is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction and training in righteousness. And so the goal this morning is that we too would find that strength and walk in it and be trained in it. So, in this passage, the main point we find is that we are strengthened by the gospel for the gospel. We are strengthened by Christ Jesus, and in turn, we may go with that strength and preach Christ Jesus. Now, some background. The first question we may ask is, why Why would Timothy need strength? Why would he need to be told by Paul, be strong? This is the very first verse in chapter 2. In order to see that more clearly, uh, let's look at chapter 1. Before we can dig in and really understand uh, the commands and imperative Paul gives, it's helpful to understand what was going on at that time. In chapter 1, Paul tells us uh, that he is a prisoner of the gospel. In verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, I, I, which is why I suffer as I do. In, in a, verse 11, he says he's appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. In verse 12, he says, I suffer for this, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what is entrusted to me. So we, we learn in this letter that Paul is in chains. Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel. Unfortunately, in verse 15 of chapter 1, we're told that people have turned away from Paul. Ministry partners, because of the shame of the cross, when push came to shove, they, they ran away with their tail between their legs. Except for one example. One example that, that Paul shares to, with Timothy. Look with me. Verse 16, Paul says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. 
but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Think of that. Paul is in a Roman prison. Everyone else is afraid to be associated with him. Onesiphorus arrives in Rome and he hunts Paul down. He is not ashamed of the message. And he's not ashamed of the messenger. So this is why strength is needed. This is why Paul is telling Timothy to be strong. Because there are two options. Shame. Or the gospel. You either are faithful and you stand with Paul and you stand with Christ. Or you run. Now, as I mentioned already, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, and it's his, final, it's his final inspired letter that we have in the Scriptures. In chapter 4, verse 6, we, we learn this more clearly. Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. This is important to realize. If you're on death row... And you have one last chance to speak to, to your, your son in the faith. Everything you say is of the utmost importance. There's nothing trivial in this letter and there's nothing trivial in what Paul is saying to Timothy. So realize that these words are coming from a man on death row. This is serious stuff. Finally, by way of background... In chapter 2, our passage 1 through 7, let's examine the structure. The first three verses are imperatives. They're commands that Paul gives to Timothy. The next three verses, 4 through 6, Paul, Paul changes gears and he starts to give indicatives. Ways that Timothy should think. Finally, in verse 7, Paul Paul concludes with a command to consider these things. And so, with that structure in mind, that is how we will approach the passage. We're first going to look at the imperatives that, Paul's, that Paul gives, what we are to do, and then we'll examine the indicatives, how we are to think, and finally we will take that final command and, and consider and think on these things. And look to Christ. So first, be strong. Be strong. That is, the, that is the theme of this passage. And that is what Paul is going to unpack more. He says in verse 1, You then, my child, be strong. Be strengthened. So he speaks as a father to a son. He speaks as a mentor to Timothy, aiming him. Elsewhere in, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Paul told that church that he acted as a father for them. How? By exhorting them and encouraging them and charging them. That is what a father does and this is what Paul is doing here. And notice that too. He, he, notice the, the family relationship in the church of God. He's not just a professor of theology giving, giving encyclopedic information. He's speaking as a father, as a shepherd, one who loves Timothy, his son in the faith. Don't forget that. 
brothers and sisters, that we are family. And, and, and the, the big question we've been asking is where? Where do we find the strength? We see in verse 1, it is the strength that is in Christ Jesus. The grace that is in Christ Jesus. Not in you. Not in me. The strength comes and we are strengthened by the grace that is found in Him, our Lord. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. When speaking of the Gospel and speaking of our Lord and our God, Paul says in verse 9 that He saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus. This is so important to remember. This is so important because oftentimes we read of the suffering that we're called to, to, to endure as Christians. And we can start to get stoic and think we need to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But no, the scriptures are clear that we are saved not by our own works and neither do we, do we obey the, the Lord in our own strength, but rather in the strength that is in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that by grace we are saved through faith. This is not our own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then he goes on to say that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared. So not only are we saved by grace, but we are strengthened and we obey by grace too. The very words that Paul is speaking here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are strengthening. The very word itself, as we read it, and the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to our Lord and Savior. That is part of the process of being strengthened. And notice that His grace is poured out on us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's where it comes from. It comes from the gospel. Now, this, so the first command is to be strong. ESV says be strengthened. It's helpful to, to recognize there's different facets to this, right? We are to be strong, but we are also strengthened by that grace. The second command Paul gives is to entrust. And we see that in verse 2. He tells him, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy heard the message again and again. We read in the book of Acts that he followed Paul along on missionary journeys. He was there when Paul preached the gospel and got beat up for it. He was there in those late nights in households as Paul was preaching and teaching the word to believers. And now Paul says that, that message, what you've seen modeled in my life, in my ministry, you now take that and you entrust. Chapter 1. In chapter 1 he tells him in verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Follow the pattern this is nothing new. Timothy doesn't have to come up with some new uh, exciting idea to teach people. Instead, it's the same simple message of the gospel. 
And there's accountability there too. Don't, don't miss that. What Paul preached was in the presence of witnesses. People witnessed what Paul taught. Timothy witnessed it. And now Paul says, you be faithful to that message, not your own message. Don't preach yourself. Preach the word. He tells him later. Preach the word in season and out of season. And notice, here he tells him to preach to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so there is a general preaching that Paul speaks of later in the book. Preach the word, and all are to hear. And here he he specifically commands Timothy to pass it on to others who can then pass it on. To teachers. So, So see the pattern. The pattern that is laid out for us is one generation to the next and to the next. And so the context of, of this is a minister speaking to a younger minister. It applies also to, to us all, to parents, to pass, pass along the, the gospel to our children, teachers, to pass it on to students. This is what we are commanded to do as well, is to entrust, entrust the message. Aren't you glad that someone was strong enough in the Lord to share the gospel with you? To offend you? To call you out as a sinner? Where would you be if some nice, sweet person decided not to offend you with God's word? Brothers and sisters, God has called us to entrust and to teach the word whether people want to hear it or not. We are not called to be nice Christian boys and Christian girls and mind our manners. We are called to preach. Now, don't get me wrong. Later in chapter 2, we are told that in verse 24 that the Lord's servant is, must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone. But as we'll see in verse 3, we are going to suffer. And this is, I'm going to spend some time here to to explain this more because this is something we really struggle with, especially in our culture. We have been brought up and raised in a culture where where we're told not to offend anyone. That's your truth. This is my truth. We'll mind each other. We'll mind our own business and not get into each other's. Are we to be kind? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're not to be unnecessarily provocative and offensive, but we are told again and again in the scriptures that the gospel itself does offend. And that brings us to the next command. Paul says, share in suffering. Verse 3, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He has to say share in suffering because Christians suffer. We really are called to that. We are called to suffer. Indeed, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 12, that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. We're told to share in it, to share in this persecution. The idea here is that we together share, share in what others have suffered. Think earlier what I mentioned. Paul preaching the gospel, gets, gets jailed for it. And people don't want to share that suffering with him. They, they turn tail and they run. Except for Onesiphorus, who shared in Paul's shame. 
who shared in the reproach that came with the gospel. So here, Paul is telling Timothy, you also share in that same suffering that I'm, that I'm going through. Notice the fellowship there. It's like soldiers in the same foxhole. We don't go it alone. I mean, Paul was, Paul was in prison alone, yet he had Timothy, he had Onesiphorus, he had the churches that were faithful to Christ. And we're to share in that together, the reproach that comes. And notice he says, share in, su- share in suffering as a soldier. Where do soldiers suffer? You can answer that one. That's not a rhetorical question. Where do, where do soldiers suffer? Battle. That means we have to fight. We do not suffer passively. We suffer as soldiers who push the front line forward. Our Lord Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Go therefore, all the nations, go and preach and baptize. Let's go there so I can get the exact words. Matthew 28. This is the charge that our Lord Jesus gave us. Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's our charge. The line, the front line is to be pushed forward. And the battle imagery is not accidental. We do not fight against flesh and blood. But we do have an enemy. And he's clever. And we are to suffer. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He's a slanderer. And his children do the same thing. Think with me for a minute. What does suffering look like? Really? Because we, we have the clear commands, we have the principles laid out that we are to share in suffering, so we all agree on that. And many evangelical Christians will agree, yes, we are to suffer for Christ. But what does that look like? What did it look like for Paul? Let's look at an example in the book of Acts. Turn with me. Acts chapter 16. It's crucial we understand this because we can be all talk and talk about suffering for the gospel. And the moment controversy arises, we run. Acts chapter 16. Beginning in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. 
When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. There's a lot more to that story. But in essence, what what happened here? What did Paul do? He healed someone in the name of Jesus. As an apostle gifted with that power of the Holy Spirit, that specific gift of healing, he ministered and delivered someone from the bondage of a demon. That's basic gospel ministry. One that he was called to in particular as an apostle. But notice, was he accused of that, of doing that? Is that what these men brought him before the judge saying, this man healed a woman and and preached Jesus Christ in the gospel of salvation and forgiveness of sins? Is Is that what the men accused Paul of doing? No. He was accused of disrespect of customs and illegal activity. Unfortunately, in our day, we're not ready to be accused of those things. Much of the church is not prepared to be accused of disrespecting customs and breaking the law. Look at another example. The most important example, truly, is that of our Lord Jesus Christ. We all had Thanksgiving recently, and we're going to be celebrating Christmas, or Advent, as Pastor Moody was saying, uh, later this month. At the dinner table, what are the two things you're not supposed to talk about? Does anyone know? Religion, I hear that. Okay, what's the other one? Politics. And COVID. (laughs) Now, why did the Jews and the Romans crucify Jesus? What were the things they accused him of? Blasphemy. Religion. He has he has sinned and broken our religious laws and practices. The high priest tore his garments and said, This man utters blasphemy. Religion. Right? Like we said saw with Paul, he Paul was breaking the customs. Later there's a riot in Ephesus in, in the book of Acts where they, they said he was blaspheming against Artemis and Jesus the very Son of God, they said, this man utters blasphemy. He's a blasphemer. Politics. What, was the, what else was he accused of? Politically, that you could think of with Jesus. Yeah, there was that. He said, don't give offense there. Do you remember... Uh, Do you remember what what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the the religious leaders were afraid of? They said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's politics. 
It's, it's right there. And that's what Paul is accused of too. He's a rabble-rouser. Over and over again, that specific accusation followed Paul wherever he ministered. They hung Jesus on a cross for that as well because they accused him of being a rabble-rouser, going to start riots. Now, were those accusations true of Paul and Jesus? Were they really blasphemers and rabble-rousers? No. Does Satan care if those accusations are true or not? No. Are his children, the children of Satan, are they really going to pause and really consider nuanced, winsome answers we could give them for why we're not those things? Not really. I mean, we need to not be quarrelsome, and we're patient, as Paul says, but we have to be ready to suffer false accusations. Are we ready for that? As a church, are we ready for that? And are you as an individual ready for that? I, I, I... take the time to describe this and to look into it in further detail because so often we look at the the scriptures and the stories here and we see, oh yeah, they, they suffered under Roman persecution and they were ready to proclaim the gospel to Caesar and the Gentiles. And that's what it looked like for them. Or we, we study the Reformation and we, we get all excited about them, you know, sticking it to the papists and preaching the gospel of justification by faith. And that's great, and I, I love those heroes. I love that story of that Scottish woman who, who threw a stool <laughs> at the person reading the, from the, I believe it was the common book of prayer or something. I love that story, right? That they were faithful and wanted to fight for the truth. Are we ready to do that in our day, in our culture? Are we ready to be accused falsely of being blasphemers of the modern religion and and rabble-rousers? Are we ready to suffer false accusation? Again, false. We preach Christ, not politics. But But Jesus himself says, go to the nations and disciple them. Call peoples to repent. Think of this with me. If you just believe and say what this says about homosexuality, you'll be called homophobic and an extremist, right? If you believe what the Bible says about manhood and womanhood, you're going to be called misogynistic. Is that true of you? Are those accusations true? Is it true of God that He is those things? No. If we believe what Christ commanded in the Great Commission, that we are to go out to all the nations, the Greek word there is ethnos, different ethnicities, and preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. If we just believe that and preach that, we will be considered in our day racists because we are promoting what they call a Western religion. Is that true of us? No. Does Satan care that it's false? No, because he's an accuser. Are we ready to suffer those accusations? And so, turn with me back to our passage. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, Suffer, share in suffering as a soldier. 
A soldier is one who fights in a battle. And he may be a casualty in the battle. Christ may call you to suffer and be a martyr, like those in the past who have died for the faith. Does that mean that the battle was lost, that God lost, because there's casualties? No. We may suffer and even die for the sake of the name, but we fight in a battle that we get to win because our Lord won. The pattern over and over again laid out in the Scripture is suffering and then glory. As I said earlier, Paul says that those who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. This is a common theme, and we need to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. And now this picture of soldier. Being a soldier, this is actually the center of the passage. The middle of the passage, and it's also the hinge where Paul, Paul now shifts the focus from imperatives and commands what we are to do to now now how we are to think. And so verses 3 and 4, he gives the image of a soldier. And then in verse 4, Paul changes from giving commands to now saying, to now describing in further detail how we are to think. How we are to think. He says in verse 4 that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The imagery here is clear. Entangled. No soldiers to get entangled in civilian affairs. Notice that word. It's so easy to get entangled. It's so easy to get trapped in worldly business and affairs. And that's what Paul is warning against. Paul is warning Timothy not to get mixed up in the stuff of life and led astray. Satan's clever. Satan's clever. He'll trap you any way he can. If he can't, if he can't uh, keep you from getting in the battle and fighting, he'll find some other way to trip you up. This reminds me here, this warning to not get entangled in civilian pursuits reminds me of Jesus' parable of the seeds and the soil. Specifically, the soil that grew up in the weeds. Jesus warned about the weeds, that they're things of this world and the stuff of life. They have a way of choking, choking us out and choking out the seed of, of the gospel. Taking our mind off that which is eternal. Taking our mind off the kingdom of heaven and to earthly things. Paul warns him. Paul warns us too. Not to get entangled. And how are we to not get entangled? First, we are to remember that we are soldiers in battle. That's the indicative. We, we are to think this way. This is who we are. We are soldiers of Christ Jesus. I can tell you this. In World War II, when the Allies were pressing forward, D-Day was successful and it was clear that Germany was going to lose and they were, they were just marching through to Berlin. People weren't, people weren't thinking about investing in property there. They weren't, they weren't getting caught up in the details and little stuff of life. No, there was a focus on victory. And that's how we are to think in our own lives, in our own battles that Christ brings before us. 
And notice the heart motivation here. This isn't legalism. I'm not saying you now need to go make a bunch of rules and restrict yourself and, and be pietistic and only, only like hide up on a mountain and think of spiritual things and not get in your elbows dirty in the world. I'm not saying that. Notice here that the, what, the guiding principle is that your aim is to please the one who enlisted you. The heart motivation for a soldier is to please the general, to fulfill the mission. And that's our heart motivation, and that is the guiding principle here, is Christ, everything you've given me in my life, all the opportunities, the roles I've had that you've given, I want to be faithful to what you have called me to. And that brings us to our, to our next picture that Paul gives us. An athlete, in verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Notice the two, the two things there for an athlete. One is the crown. There's a reward. There is a goal. There is a victory that is being sought by the athlete. But they must do it according to the rules. Let's look at that crown first. Paul uses this picture throughout his letters. You might remember it in 1 Corinthians. He uses that picture of an athlete. Here he uses the, the picture of a crown again later in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That's what Paul's looking forward to. He's looking forward to the reward that his master will give him on that final day. He's looking down to the finish line, which he was getting very close to, and he was telling Timothy, I'm, I'm almost there, now you, you pick up where I left off. But he's looking forward, that's the focus. Just like the soldier's focus is to please the general, the athlete is looking to the reward past the finish line. Not getting mixed up in the stuff of this life. Not getting distracted. Paul says that the athlete competes according to the rules. According to the rules. If, you, uh, if you're playing basketball, you don't, start use, you don't start kicking the ball with your feet, do you? You don't change the rules of the game. If I'm playing soccer with you and I run over and I just grab the ball, unless I'm the goalie, you're going to say, what, what on earth are you doing? And this is key to understand because the temptation is to either run Entirely and just ditch, ditch faithful ministry, like Demas, in love with the world, like the people who left Paul. Or the other temptation is to change the rules of the game, to change the message, to make it more accommodating. That's why Paul, Paul says in chapter one, thirteen, verse thirteen, to follow this sound pattern of teaching that I've laid out. Now, and this message wasn't something Paul made up either. It was given to him by God, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we are to compete according to that rule of faith. We don't change it. We don't change the pattern. And so notice this. Satan will either sideline you entirely. You're not in the fight at all as a Christian. You're not engaging. Or he'll get you to play the wrong, the wrong game. That's why elsewhere in this same letter, 
in this same letter, Paul gives a good, good warning. He says in verse 14 of chapter 2, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearer. Jumping down to verse 16, he says, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Verse 23 of chapter 2, he says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. So notice, Satan will either get you to run, tempt you to run, or he might get you involved in some foolish controversy. Something that isn't really related to the gospel. Something that's not worth fighting for. Satan will lead you astray into that battle. Paul says, no, stay focused on the gospel. Does that mean that, we're not, that we don't have controversy? No, it's just real controversy, not foolish. Remember that. There are many Christians and professing Christians who the moment you get in any kind of hot water for saying what the Bible says... Don't, have, don't, don't get into foolish controversy. Don't quarrel over words. You know, let's, just, let's just focus on Jesus. Okay, but what did Jesus say about these things you're telling me not to get involved in? What did Jesus say about the gospel? So we will have controversy. We just need to make sure it's for the right things and that we are suffering rightly that we're running and playing the right game that God has called us to. Do you understand? So, the goal is the reward. The goal is the crown. And so as we are suffering as soldiers, as we're competing as athletes, we also are to work hard like farmers. Verse 6. He says it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And I am so thankful for this picture. I don't know about you, but when I think about the soldiers fighting in battle and the athlete competing and getting the crown, oftentimes the day-to-day stuff of life seems a bit monotonous and not important. But here Paul gives us a picture of diligent, dirty work. The farmer, day in, day out, working hard for, as unto the Lord. Much of life and ministry is not the glory of battle or the taste of victory. It is that day in, day out labor. Whether you're a pastor shepherding a flock for years or a parent raising up children, changing diapers, disciplining them yet again. And, you, and, you, and by faith you do these things. By faith you trust that the harvest will come and that what you sow actually will be reaped. This message is to to a pastor. Paul is speaking to a minister. But notice the the broader picture in this letter. I want want to encourage you in this. Look in chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Be encouraged, mothers and grandmothers. 
that, that passing on of one generation to the next? We saw it, yes, with, with Moses and Joshua, David and Solomon, Paul and Timothy. And so there is that ministerial office being passed down. But the gospel has been passed down generation after generation through the work of many faithful fathers and mothers. And no, notice for Timothy, in Acts 16, it says that his father was a Greek, his mother was a Jew. Nothing else is said of his father. We know that Timothy wasn't circumcised until Paul later did the work, so his father wasn't practicing anything. And we, for, all, for all we know, he was an unbeliever. And, and all that scripture stuff, that was his wife's, that was, that was her thing, the Bible. And yet, that woman was faithful. Faithful with the gospel. To, faithful with that message to give it to her boy. Who grew up to become a faithful minister of Christ. Again, just like the farmer, much of our labor is diligent, dirty, day-in, day-out work. And that victory, that crown, isn't going to be on our heads until we see the Lord Jesus face-to-face. Face and that's where faith comes into all of this. We believe, and so we work. We believe, and so we speak. And get in trouble with the world. I want to take a moment to think finally of who we are serving. This ultimately is the context of what Paul is charging Timothy with. He's not just calling Timothy to get involved in some culture war. He's not telling Timothy to just be an armchair theologian. No, he's saying suffer and suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must ask, who is this Lord Jesus Christ that we suffer for? Well, in this letter we see, Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 1, that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. The promise of life is in Christ Jesus. That's our Savior. That's what this all is for, is the, the promise of life. When we look around and see all the death around us, when we hear in the news that they're castrating children, that's death. That's evil and that's wicked and we should hate it and speak. Not because we're conservatives or Republicans, but because our Lord Jesus is life. And He's the Creator, and He created that child in the image of God. That is why we speak. He's the abolisher of death and bringer of life. Again, that theme of life is all throughout this letter. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 10, He says, And now which has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. The life is in Christ and He doesn't just bring life but He abolishes death. And so as we follow in His footsteps and fight and preach the truth, we do seek to abolish death. This Lord Jesus is the risen King. Chapter 2, verse 8, right after our passage, the very next verse Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead 
the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. That was the gospel he was preaching. This is our Lord, the seed of David, just as Pastor Moody was speaking to earlier. The one promised long ago, the seed of the woman who'd crush Satan's head, that's the one we preach. That's the one we fight for. He is the risen Lord, seated at the right hand of the throne of God on high. And God has told His Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Finally, He's the judge of the living and the dead. Chapter 4, verse 1, He says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, preach the word. That's, that's the, the grounds for the command to preach the word. That's why we preach, is because we are in the presence of of Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead. This is real stuff. This is a matter of life and death, of eternal consequence. And that is why we preach. That's why we teach. That's why we suffer and entrust it. That's why we endure being called crazy. That's why we are willing to be falsely accused. And that's why we need to be ready in our own day to be slandered to be called Christian nationalists or whatever other term they want to make up for us, just by being faithful to this message. We need to be ready for that, beloved. Think on these things. Finally, who is our Lord Jesus? He's the one who gives us understanding in everything. Verse 7, he says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I don't know about you, But when I think of all this big stuff, all the enemies out there, it's scary and it's confusing. How do you sift through it all? How do we we know what fight to fight and what fight to avoid? The Lord will give you understanding, beloved. We are His children. We are the sheep of His pasture. He will give us understanding. So let us think over these things and recognize the time that we are in. And not cast ourselves in a story 200, 500 years ago, but recognize the story that we've been put in now, that we are the next link in the chain. We are. We are a part of the bigger story that God is telling. It's not your story. It's not mine. It's His. And so we join in with the saints, and we press on to make Christ Jesus our own. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, you, you have promised in your word that you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that you are faithful and true. Thank you that you are the one who abolishes death. And thank you that as your church, you have called us to crush Satan under our feet, as Paul says in Romans chapter 16. Help us to fight as faithful soldiers. Help us, Lord, with your spirit to walk in truth, to not be led astray by lies. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you.